continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of James. Take your Bible, if you would, and turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. If you're visiting with us today, we are thankful that you're here. So glad that you've taken time on the Sunday to worship the Lord together with the family of believers here of Christ Fellowship Bible Church, and we are studying through the book of James. James chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. I'm going to preach today on the sin of partiality, the sin of favoritism, and the reasons why favoritism is sin. Follow with me as I read James chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 to 13, just so we can get the whole paragraph, beginning in verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you... Have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. It is the unfolding of your word that gives light. We live, Lord, in a dark world. We live in a very dark culture, a dark nation. Our own sinful hearts are dark. By sin. Holy Spirit, would you lovingly, powerfully, divinely, through the powerful preaching of the Word of God, would you show us our sin? Convict us over our sin. And then drive us again and again and again to the cross of Christ, where sufficient grace and mercy is found. What a glorious Savior we have who forgives us for a sin that we so often commit. Teach us, we pray, 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our missionary in the country of India is named Ratan Konala. He told me recently on a Zoom call, he said, Jeff, one of the great struggles that we have in our ministry at Acts Bible Church is the caste system in India. The division of peoples into various groups. Imagine how this kind of a social structure, if you were living in that kind of a system, might affect your life. Members of a, of a higher caste enjoy more wealth and they enjoy more opportunities, while members of a lower caste perform menial jobs with lesser opportunities. And of course, outside of the caste system are the untouchables. The untouchables. Maybe I could illustrate it like this. There was a man from India who was studying at a university here in America, and he wanted to understand Christianity, and so he read the Gospels. He read the Gospels, and as he read the Gospels, he was quite moved by the reading of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it seemed to him that Christianity, that is the the truth of the Bible, offered a solution that he had never heard of before growing up in the caste system of India. It plagued his people, it plagued his family, it plagued his country in India. One Sunday, the young college student went to a local church down the road from his university. And he wanted to see the pastor, and he wanted to ask instruction on the way of salvation. And this young Indian man entered into this church, and when he entered in, which the church was predominantly consisting of white people, the ushers refused to give him a seat. They told him to go and worship with his own Indian people. He left. He never came back. As he was walking away, that young college student said, if Christians have caste systems as well, I might as well remain Hindu. There's no difference. What a a tragic story. What a tragic story about judging based upon externals. That illustrates where we are in James chapter 2. Pastor James is going to unpack many themes that he introduced in chapter 1. And James 2 is a very well-known chapter. Verses 1 to 13, James is going to teach you faith and humility. Faith and humility. And then the final 13 verses of the chapter is going to teach us faith and works. Faith in your works. It's like James, the pastor, is going to say to early Christians, you need to love others well and you need to live out your faith well. That's really the whole essence of James 2. You've got to love others well, verses 1 to 13, and you've got to live out your faith well, verses 14 through 26. And our sin today, our sin, our text today And then our text next week as well is going to show us the sin of favoritism. The sin of favoritism. And then it's going to draw out reasons why. I want to begin by just sharing with you what is favoritism. What is favoritism? How do we understand this biblically? And I came across this and you'll be interested in this. If New York is known for its money... L.A. is known for its fame. Many have said that St. Louis is known for its division. 
What an opportunity you and I have to be distinct. What an opportunity you and I have to be distinct as those who have been saved by the blood of Christ, those who are living out the walk with Christ and loving others with the love of Christ. Verses 1 to 13 is a very important topic all around the idea of favoritism. Now, if you look in your Bible at verse 1 of chapter 2, James says, don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude I have of personal favoritism. The NIV has, you must not show favoritism. The New Living Translation says, you shall not favor some people over other people. That's good. That's a good way to render it. The ESV has, you shall show no partiality. The King James says you should have no respect of persons. Another English translation has you should show no prejudice. Another English translation talked about snobbery, have no snobbery. Another English translation rendered it there should be no worship of ranks. Worship of ranks. Still other English translations said, you shall not treat some people better than other people. Why? Because the Greek idea of partiality, when James wrote it out in Greek, it means you are judging someone based upon the externals. That's the meaning of the Greek word. You're judging someone based upon externals. Literally, you're judging people by their face. How do they look? How do they appear? How do they present themselves? And then you make a decision, a judgment based upon externals. What does this kind of judging, favoritism include? It includes discrimination. The act or practice or the instance of discriminating categorically. This topic even includes bias, an inclination that can come from a perceived conclusion about someone or something. It includes the idea of prejudice, the idea of prejudice, a preconceived judgment or opinion before gaining sufficient knowledge. It even includes judgments that are based on evil motives. You might be sitting here and you think, Jeff, I I get it. I know that sin. I don't do that. Friend, my proposal to you is not if, but where. Where do you make quick, rash judgments based upon externals? Not if, where. Boys and girls, you do this as well. Dads and moms do this. We all do this. Every single one of us. What if the doors were to be thrown open and someone were to come in the back doors and come all the way down to the front and he had more tattoos, more piercings, more hoops, and more holes than you thought was possible for a human body to have and he sat down in the front, what would you think about that person? Would a a rich man or a poor person feel welcome here? What if they look like us? What if they don't? What if they're from a different country, a different culture, a different background, a different people group? 
In what ways do you intentionally or unintentionally favor some people over others? And why do we do that? Do we reach out to all people in our midst without any hint of favoritism or discrimination at all? Could you say that you're completely free from being impressed by the wealth of someone or the power of someone or the position of someone or the looks of others just on the outside? What about the person who is needy? They they take up time. They seem to need constant discipleship and constant growth. And and do we love and serve and minister to those that just need more time? What about the older? What about the quieter? What about the younger? What about the shy people? What about the singles and the divorced and the widows and the shut-ins? Do we have judgments based upon externals? Who are the people you naturally gravitate to in your life when we gather here at the church? Who are the people that you gravitate to? Who are the people that you regularly talk with? The people that you might invite over for hospitality? Are you quick to come to conclusions about people based upon their dress, their skin color, their job, their fashion, their background? Their smell, their appearance, how they talk, where they're from, where they live, and their level of maturity. How often it is that you and I so quickly come to conclusions because we see people and we come to a quick, impulsive decision and a judgment based upon externals. We're all there. Every single one of us. And here's what is so beautiful about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel of grace absolutely shatters and destroys divisions and distinctions that are based upon externals. Let me say it again. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ absolutely shatters and destroys divisions and distinctions that are based upon externals. How do we, how do we fight against this? How do we fight against this kind of favoritism? Well, we ought to reach out to all of the saints, even those that are different. Age, background, culture. We ought to invite folks over to our home that are different. We ought to pray for the flock, all of the flock. We ought to evangelize people who are different. They look different. They smell different. They have a different background. Many different sins, many different habits, many different cultures. Oh, church, we need to look inward and not ask if, but say, Lord, where? Where have I sinned in the area of favoritism and partiality where I come to quick judgments about people based upon externals? Lord, show me where. 
Still by way of introduction, by the way. The one who began and the one who thrives in partiality and favoritism is none other than Satan. Satan loves partiality. He loves partiality. Why? Because, get this, partiality breeds from self-love. Partiality breeds from pride. And quite honestly, this this hurts a little bit, but partiality comes from an all-consuming self-consciousness. Partiality is self-seeking. It always divides. It never comes from humility. It's never unifying. And that's why Jesus, when he was teaching in the temple courts in John chapter 7, and he was dealing with the Pharisees, he said to them, stop judging by mere appearances, but you need to judge correctly. What a needed word for all of us to not judge based upon mere appearances, but to judge Correctly, And that's what verse 1 tells us. Look at verse 1 in your Bible. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Let there be no favoritism, no partiality at all. And then James, in verses 2 to 4, is going to give us an illustration of favoritism. Still by way of introduction, let me give you an illustration of favoritism, because James no doubt learned from his brother Jesus in illustrating truth. You give a point, and then you illustrate it with a story. That's what he does. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. Let me illustrate it, James says. If a man comes into your synagogue, this is early Jewish Christianity, if somebody comes into your synagogue assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit by my footstool. James is using a a parable. It's a story. It's an illustration that everybody would have understood. Imagine the assembly, the gathering together of God's people. It's a synagogue in the early Jewish Christianity. It's a little parable. And he says, let's call him Mr. Expensive Suit. Verse 2, he comes into your assembly. Let's just modernize it a little bit. With the perfectly fitted suit. Perfectly placed tie, shiny shoes, cleanly ironed white shirt. And he comes into your assembly, literally in the Greek in verse 2, he's the gold fingers. He's even got gold hanging off of his expensive suit. And you see him judging on the externals, and you say, you come sit right here in a good place. We've got a nice front row seat for you in the expensive chair. It's the most comfortable chair we have. You sit right here in front. That's how you treat Mr. Expensive Suit. And then in walks Mr. Shabby Look. Mr. Shabby Look, verse 3, verse 2 at the ends, there comes a poor man in dirty clothes. He smells. He's dirty. He's filthy. He's not like you. And you, you tell him to go stand over there. 
or, or, or sit at my footstool right here. You can hear James sort of flushing out this parable, and we're, we're hearing this, and we're sensing what James is saying, and we, we respond by saying, what a sick, arrogant, abominable attitude that is. Verse 4. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves? And have you become judges with evil motives? You're you're becoming judges. Look, in the story, Pastor James goes straight to the reader and he says, you are discriminating and you're doing so with evil thoughts, evil motives, as if you're, here's what's hard, as if you're living for the kingdom of self. When we show favoritism, when we show partiality, we're not living in that moment with thoughtfulness and care for the kingdom of God. We want to advance my kingdom, my agenda, what I want, how I feel, what I wish. We're living for the kingdom of self when we show partiality as if I have the right to judge people based upon my superior knowledge of them. Ah, what pride! What pride! And James, in verses 2 to 4, has given this parable. He's given an example. He's given an illustration showing the prideful, the arrogant, the judgmental sin of measuring people based upon their externals. And James says, Christian, that has no place among God's people. Guess what? The world has plenty of that. The church should have none of that. None of that at all. Now, what I want to do in the time that remains in the sermon outline that I want to give you is tell you why favoritism is so sinful. I want to tell you why favoritism is so sinful. And we're going to look at the opening seven verses sort of generally. And I'm going to show you why favoritism is so sinful. Because in verses five to seven, James is going to show this in two ways. He's going to show kind of a practical argument why favoritism is so bad. And then in verses eight to 11, he's going to give the biblical or the exegetical reason why favoritism is so bad. We're going to look at these generally today and next week, but I want to flesh it out more. And I want to give you five reasons why favoritism is so sinful. Why is it so sinful? And before we even get to the outline, you need to look with me at verse five, because James can't get far from the gospel. He says, listen, my beloved brethren, didn't God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But, but you, verse 6, you've dishonored the poor man. And then it's like James goes to like current events for them. It's like he goes to contemporary events for them in the early church. Look at the three questions in verse 6. Is it not the rich who are personally oppressing you? Well, the answer is yes, that's 
what happened in the early church. The book of Acts tells us about that. And isn't it the rich who personally drag you into court? The end of verse 6, well, the answer is yes, that was often happening. Verse 7, well, do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? And the answer is yes to that as well. And so James is saying, practically, why would you show favoritism to the rich if they're doing this to you? It doesn't make sense. He's pulling out the current events, showing that favoritism is so sinful. It's unhelpful. It's impractical. It makes no sense at all. But for the time that remains, I want to draw out five reasons pastorally why favoritism is so sinful. I want to show you why it is sinful. And if you're taking notes, this is our outline. Number one, it is inconsistent with the clear command of God. It is inconsistent with the clear command of God. Of God, And I get that from verse 1. I mean, you see it right here in verse 1. My brethren, don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. James says, don't do it. And then verse 4, he fleshes it out even more. Haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Ouch. Yeah. We have. It is sin. Why is favoritism sinful? Because it is inconsistent with God's clear command. It results from evil thoughts. It insults people made in the image of God. It is a byproduct of selfish motives. It goes against the biblical definition of love. It shows a lack of mercy to those who are less fortunate. It's hypocritical. But but it's not only here in James. The whole Bible talks about the sin of favoritism. Deuteronomy 1.17, you shall show no partiality. Proverbs 28 verse 21 tells us to show partiality is not good. In 1 Timothy 5.21, the Apostle Paul tells Pastor Timothy, you need to maintain biblical principles doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. In the church, there should be nothing done in a spirit of partiality. And then look at verse 9. Just let your eyes skip down to James 2, verse 9. You see it right here. If you show partiality, you are committing sin. And you are convicted by the law as transgressors. So the first reason... The first reason why partiality and favoritism is sin is because it is inconsistent with God's clear command. Let me give you a second reason. A second reason why favoritism is sinful. Number two, if you're taking notes, get this. It is inconsistent with our family bond in Christ. It's inconsistent with our family bond in Christ. And I want to show you how James emphasizes it. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. My brethren. Do you see that? He calls believers brethren. James begins new sections in his letter with my brethren or my beloved brethren. What does that mean? We're a family 
We're a family. Jew, Gentile, young, old, rich, poor. We're family. We're brothers in the family of God. Now hear this. A family bond does not take away uniquenesses within a family. But it does break down barriers and it does break down divisions. The uniquenesses and the differences between an individual and another individual, they're not a barrier to a family. You might have a child with light hair and a child with dark hair, a taller child and a shorter child. You don't have favoritism to one over the other based upon how they look, even though they're different. We welcome them as family. Let me read for you how Paul brings it out in Galatians. Let me read for you Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ, so there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free man, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I love that. You're one in Christ. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 18, through Christ, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So you're no longer strangers, you're no longer aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and we are of God's household. What does that mean? We're in the family together. If we are showing favoritism or partiality in the people of God, it's inconsistent with our family bond in Christ. Let me give you a third reason why showing favoritism is sin. It is inconsistent, third, it is inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I get that also from verse 1. If you look with me in your Bible, James 2 verse 1, my brethren, don't hold your faith In our Lord Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of glory, with an attitude of personal favoritism. You know what James is saying? We have faith. We have faith in Jesus Christ. And guess what? He's the Lord of glory. He's the one who is glorious. We hold to the gospel of faith. The gospel of faith in Jesus Christ. There's no levels. There's no hierarchy. There's no partiality. There's no favoritism. There's no biases. There's no special honors given to the better Christians and lesser honors given to the not-so-great Christians. No. I don't think it's a mistake that in verse 1, if you see in your Bible there, James called him our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Or in the ESV, the Lord Jesus, he is the Lord of glory. What does that mean? He's the king over the kingdom, not you. 
It's not about what can I judge about people based upon my superior knowledge for my kingdom, the way that I want things. James is saying, no, 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 no. The gospel of Christ is the gospel of faith in Jesus Christ, and he's the Lord of glory. It is a gospel of faith that we all embrace together for Christians. Let me give you a fourth reason, just two more. We're flying through this because I want to get to one additional point that I want to flesh out before we're done. Number four, a fourth reason why favoritism is so sinful. Number four, it is inconsistent with God's sovereign election. Now, I want you to look in your Bible at verse 5. Verse 5 is one of these tucked away verses that ought to cause you to leap for joy. In your discouragement, you can come back here. In your worry and fear, you can come back here. In your despair this upcoming week, you can come back here. When you look at the culture and politically, you can come back to this verse for hope. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Obvious answer, yes, he did. Of course. What is James writing and saying? Many in the early church were, in fact, poor. Not all, but many were poor. And yet God chose the poor ones who have nothing to bring to God. And God called the poor ones, and they are rich in faith. Lesson. Here's the lesson. God did not look at your externals to see how worthy and to see how deserving you were and then choose you. He didn't do that. Aren't we thankful he didn't do that? No, he chose you not because of who you are and because of who you were, in spite of who you are. In spite of what you've done, he set his saving, electing love upon you. If we show favoritism, it is inconsistent with God's sovereign election. I'm going to pause on that and come back to that in just a minute. Let me give you one more reason. Number five, if you're taking notes, the fifth reason why favoritism is sinful. It is inconsistent, number five, with God's royal law of love. It is inconsistent with the royal law of love. This is my sermon for next Sunday. I'm going to flesh this out much more next week. But look in your Bible at verse 8. Look at what James says here. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Ha! You're doing well if you love each other. But verse 9, if, if you show partiality, if you show favoritism, you're committing sin. And you're convicted by the law as transgressors. When you and I show favoritism, it is inconsistent with the law of love toward one another. You hear this. You hear the definitions of partiality and favoritism and all the examples that I gave early on in the introduction. And we all respond and we think, 
I'm guilty. I've sinned. I've shown favoritism. So have you. Based upon externals. We've all made judgments. We've done it. We've treated people differently as if we are king of our own kingdom and we have the authority to judge people with evil motives and it could be someone who has power or possession or, or, or riches or whatever appearance they may have. We judge them based upon externals. And you, you, you're convicted, and the Spirit of God is working in your heart, and, and you think, I, 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 feel, I feel convicted by the law of God, and I know that I have sinned here. What am I supposed to do? Where, where do I go for hope so that I don't do this? And I'm convinced that the key is to go back to the character of God and back to the saving work of Christ. And I want you to look with me at verse 5. I want to flesh this out for a minute. I don't think the solution is, we'll just stop showing favoritism. Just stop it. Now, there's an element of seeing the sin and seeking to put off the sin, but if we're going to replace it with something, we need to replace it with verse 5. We need a hearty, we need a daily, we need a diligent preaching of gospel truth to our hearts as the remedy for this. Verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren. You can almost hear Pastor James saying, church, you got to get this. Didn't God choose the poor of this world? To be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. I mean, didn't God choose you, an undeserving poor sinner? Yeah. Didn't God choose you to be heirs of the kingdom that is to come? Yes. What's the point? Totally undeserved. You didn't deserve it. You didn't deserve it. Christian, consider your past. Consider where you were before God saved you. Don't think too long about it. But think of the mess of sin that you were tangled in. And your pride. And your works. And your self-righteousness. And your anger. And your bitterness. And your worldliness. You rebelled against Christ. You gave no thought to Christ. Consider what you had to offer God. Answer, nothing. Nothing. You didn't bring anything to the table that merited God choosing you except the filth of your sin. And consider how God, verse 5, he chose you. Think of verse 5. Oh, think of the, the choosing. This is a sovereign election. It is a work of God. It is a particular election that God set his saving choice upon particular ones. It is a permanent election. When he chooses his people in eternity past, it is a permanent choice that will never, ever be destroyed. 
It is a saving election that when God chose his people from eternity past, it was an election that saves. And when God chose his people in eternity past, we read in Ephesians 1, he did so in love. It is a loving election. It's not a cold-hearted deity far away. This is a God of love. It is an intra-Trinitarian election. The Father chose, and he chose his people in the Son. And the Spirit of God is going to give life to those whom the Father chose. The working of the triune God. And it is an unmerited election. You didn't do anything to deserve it. You can't do anything to deserve it. You couldn't do anything to bring God to you. It is a free, a divine, a sovereign, a glorious, a saving, an undeserved election from God. Christian, this is what God has done to you, for you, from eternity past. It has nothing to do with how you look on the outside. It has nothing to do with what you can bring to him. It has nothing to do with how God benefits from you and me. It's a free choice of God. Verse 5, look at it again. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world oh, to be rich in faith? That's you and me. You and I were poor. We had nothing to offer God. And you're rich in faith. He doesn't say rich in cash. You're rich in faith. And you're heirs. Heirs. You're adopted. You're adopted into God's family. And there's a kingdom that God promises to those who love him. What is the solution? To battle favoritism, you know what it is? To remember God's sweet love and choice of you. That's the solution. The solution to fight favoritism is to remember God's love and his choice of you. I want to show you this. Take your Bible and go back to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I want to take you to two scriptures, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I want you to see verse 9 with me. The Apostle Paul is writing to the believers. It's actually the context of financial giving. It's the context of giving to the local church, but right in the middle of that, one of the motives for giving, the ultimate motive, is to remember the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Do you see the beauty of this verse here? That he who was rich in glory, he left it all to come to earth, and he took on Not just physical poverty, but the full divine wrath of God. So that you, through that poverty work, might become rich in faith with the the spiritual blessings of Christ. 
This is what you have. In verse 9, you see it in your Bible, it's all of grace. It's all grace. You didn't deserve it. Jesus didn't do this work based upon your looks, based upon your family, based upon your church, based upon what you would do for God. It's grace. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, swimming in a culture of, of scholarship and immorality and money and worldliness. The Corinthian culture was a godless, it was a pagan culture. And Paul is writing, and here's what he says in chapter 1, verse 26. Look at what Paul says. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. Why? Verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. Verse 30, lest there's any confusion, don't miss 1 Corinthians 1.30. But by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I mean, do you see what Paul has been saying? Do you see what James is saying? What is the solution to favoritism? What is the antidote to partiality? It is to remember that God chose you, the poor of the world, to be rich in faith. He chose you. And now you love him, James 2 says in verse 5. He promised the kingdom to those who love him. So here's the point. Why do you judge others based upon externals if God didn't do that with you? That's the whole point. Why do you judge others based upon externals if God didn't do that with you? You ever have times in your life where There's a verse that maybe you read, maybe it's a a chapel or a sermon or a podcast or your own private reading, and it's like like the spotlight is on that verse, and you've read it a million times, and you think, it's like I've never seen that before. For me, that verse not long ago was 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16. Paul says, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. You know what that's saying? I don't don't judge people based upon how they look in the flesh. What they look like and how they are makes no difference to me at all. 2 Corinthians 5, 16. From now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Ah, that's what's important. Are you in Christ or are you not in Christ? It's not a big deal what you look like on the outside. The real issue is your soul. Are you in Christ or are you not in Christ. And then Paul continues in 2 Corinthians 5. 
All these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Paul is not concerned with externals and appearances. Paul says, I want to know if you're in Christ or not. Barriers are broken. Externals are inconsequential. Divisions are destroyed. Social statuses are replaced by sovereign grace that is lavished on us at the foot of the cross. We're all there at the foot of the cross together. We're all there together. It's like what you see in the New Testament when you see rich Joseph of Arimathea and rich Nicodemus. And they go to a Nazarene, a Jewish man, a hated man, a despised man, a rejected man, a crucified man. And they go to the bloody corpse. Nailed to a cross, bloody, mangled, probably a barely looking human corpse with bodily organs probably protruding out all over because of the beatings. Their money, their status, their look, their appearance in that moment is meaningless. Totally meaningless. Why? They love their Savior. They love their Savior. And James says in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, don't hold your faith in Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. It's sin. Don't do it. What we need to do is remember what God has done for us. Didn't God choose the poor of the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Oh, the question for us is, do we love our Savior? And as we do, we must forsake all favoritism, all partiality, all arrogant judging, because, I'll say it again, it has no place among God's people. No place at all. You're hearing this, and you're cornered. Because the loving Spirit of God has, as his ministry, the ministry of convicting If you're convicted, the Spirit of grace is working in your heart. You see your sin. You see where you've been judging based upon externals. It's in your mind right now. It's in your heart. The Spirit of God has brought it to mind. You come to Christ. You confess that sin. You repent of that sin. You seek to forsake it. You seek to replace it with love and humility and service and a, and a mindset of how God has chosen you. You come to Christ and you come to his grace again and again and again. 
But maybe you're here in this room today and you're hearing James chapter 2 verses 1 to 7 expounded. And man, your sin is just exposed and you're squirming and you're fighting because you know that you are a person who loves to judge people based upon their externals. Your whole life is one marked by judging people based on externals. And you have no clue that God would choose you or save you or love you. And you need God's grace. And you need his forgiveness. And you need his mercy. And the world has a lot of talk about reconciliation. But that which can reach the heart and bring about true change is only found in Christ and in Scripture. That's where true hope is found. You need a cleansed, you need a forgiven, you need a washed heart. And behold Christ in his person and in his work and in his beauty and in his mercy and in his compassion. He is inviting you to come, not to try to bring yourself to God and say, well, my good outweighs the bad. You have no good. You're full of sin. And you need to come to the bloody cross because it is only the blood of the cross that can wash all of your sins white. And you'll never escape hell unless you are perfectly white in the obedience that God says is enough. And you can't do it. You're not able to do it. Your favoritism and your partiality and your judging and your evil motives is sin before God. We're all there. But for those of us as believers, we come again to Christ. And he gives a great grace. He gives a sufficient grace. He can wash you. He can cleanse you. He can bring you near to himself again. Oh, what he would love to do that with you, child of God. You're here today and you've been walking in your sin. You've lived a life of partiality, a whole life based upon judging people, based upon externals. And little did you know, God sees you and he sees your heart and he sees your sin and he sees how you fall short. You need the Savior. You need the Savior. God gives a greater grace. And whether somebody is rich or poor, or male or female, or Jew or Gentile, or young or old, or educated or not, or has power in the world, or prestige in the world, or homeless in the world, or whatever socioeconomic status, we need the mercy of Christ. That's all we need. I want to illustrate this with a closing illustration. It comes from the early 1900s when King Edward VII was king of Great Britain. And he had as a friend the evangelist Wilson Carlyle. And King Edward and Wilson Carlyle were having a conversation one day. It was near the end of his life. 
the end of the king's life, that is. And Carlisle was kind of known for being an evangelist, going down to the, the down and out, the rough men of London, going to the rough areas, the tough areas, and sharing the gospel there. Well, one day Carlisle, the evangelist, came to the bedside of the royal king. He was ailing, he was sick, he was older. And the king said, well now, Carlisle, what do you tell the men that you see down in the rough areas? Carlisle thought for a moment. And before the evangelist even uttered a word, the king said, here's what you should tell your people. You need to tell them that kings and tramps need the same savior. What a good word. Kings and tramps need the same Savior. He's available. He's merciful and able to save. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the powerful, the mighty, penetrating work of the Spirit of God deep in our hearts. Would you please, by your mercy, help us to love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Oh, thank you that love is displayed, not that we loved you, O Lord, but that you loved us and you sent your Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Oh, guard us from the sin of favoritism. Forgive us for where we have sinned in partiality. And help us to be awed by the amazing election of God who did not choose us based upon our externals. And out of being awed and overwhelmed with such grace, help us to lavish that toward one another. All glory be to Christ for his saving of our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.